0: Thanks, Brother John. Good morning, brethren and sisters. It's the Apostle Peter who sets us on the right path in relation to the subject of the Nazarite. Because, you see, in the first of Peter, chapter 2, he tells us of the exalted position that we occupy through our calling. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, words with which we are familiar, the Apostle says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. He makes mention of the fact, brethren and sisters, that we are a royal priesthood. Israel of course were declared as a kingdom of priests at Sinai and Peter picks up the words of Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 and he weaves them through his words here in this epistle and he makes it quite plain brethren and sisters as to what our role is today we are in preparation to be the priests and indeed the kings of the future age and so Here we are in that time of preparation and the present is our training ground and Peter says in verse 5 of this chapter, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We don't offer or mediate for anyone else, that's the role of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we do have a responsibility to make sacrifices, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And that is our role as a priest today. brethren and sisters, we're going to see this morning, God willing, that when you come to the law of the Nazarite, it was given for the specific purpose that either a man or a woman, and this is an unusual thing, for women were not related to the priesthood back in those times, either a man or a woman could take a vow of a Nazarite and for a time become a priest. In fact, the whole purpose of the Nazarite vow was to emulate their high priest. We're going to see that this is a fundamental factor in any consideration of Numbers chapter 6. We're going to try and establish some very firm platforms this morning upon which we will build our studies in the days to come, God willing. So the history of priesthood is an interesting one. We go back to the original priests, the firstborn of the family. We know that Cain was the priest in the family of Adam. Of course, he wasn't up to the job and was replaced in due time. Priesthood was revealed in the times of Abraham in the person of Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. And it's after his order, of course, that the priests of the future age will operate. Jesus Christ now being a priest in heaven after the order of Melchizedek. And those who will be with him in the future age, brethren and sisters, will be priests after that order who are called in Hebrews chapter 12 a kind of firstfruits, firstborns. The firstborns. So we go right back to the original practice of the firstborn of the family being the priest of the family. But we know, of course, that there was the time in Israel's history when they came to Sinai that the firstborn operated as a priest in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 5. But in due time, the Levites replaced them. And so the Aaronic priesthood uh, operated from the time of the wilderness down to around about AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. By that time, it had been replaced, of course, by the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the history of priesthood in a nutshell. And this is where we're going to be this morning, talking about the Nazarite vow and its relationship to priesthood. Brethren and sisters, I just want to bring before you a couple of quotations this morning from what I think is one of the most... Magnificent Expositions of the Law of Moses, the book Law and Grace by Brother Barley. And he makes this statement. He says, The correspondence between the Nazarite and Aaron are too obvious to miss. In place of Aaron's mitre and crown, which he was disqualified as a layman from assuming, the Nazarite had a full growth of hair for crown and as a symbol of his consecrated separateness. During his separation... A shaven head would have been as unbecoming in him as in Aaron himself. As the priest, while ministering in the sanctuary, was forbidden to drink wine, so the Nazarite, while fulfilling his vow, was to abstain utterly from the fruit of the vine in any of its many forms. No defilement by death was permitted him. The law for him was as stringent as for Aaron in this respect. So the point that Brother Barling is making, is that the Nazarite was to emulate the priest. In fact, he was a replica of the high priest. And in Numbers chapter 6, to which we shall now return, we have, of course, those three stipulations that are laid down, which on the surface of it do not appear to have much relationship to each other. They are a strange set of stipulations. But in actual fact, as we shall see this morning, Each of these has a common denominator and when we discover that we will have discovered the key to the Nazarite vow and when we've got that key we can unlock many passages in the scriptures and certainly we can unlock the lives of those who were Nazarites unto God in their time. So we have of course those three stipulations the prohibition on wine and strong drink that as we go to see in a moment was laid down in the wake of an absolute disaster in the life of Aaron and his family. In Leviticus 10 verses 8 and 9. We have the stipulation concerning the crown of hair on the head, the undressed hair of the Nazarite. That lines up with the requirement of the priest, as we shall see as we look at these passages in a moment. In Leviticus 21 verses 5 and 12, and Exodus 28, 36-38, that the priest would have his head covered while he ministered. And thirdly, the strict avoidance of death was also uh, required of particularly the high priest, but also the priests under him. And we know these passages, without even fact turning them up, I'm sure we're familiar with it. The highlighted words here in Leviticus chapter 21 make that point. Verse 5, they shall not make boldness upon their head. This is the law of the requirements laid upon the priests. Neither shall they shave off the corner of their beards, etc. Verse 10, towards the end of that verse it says, he shall not uncover his head. In verse 11 we read, neither shall he, the priest, go in into any dead body, lest he defile himself. And so, brethren and sisters, it's fairly obvious, as Brother Barling points out, that the Nazarite principles, the stipulations that were required of him or her, lined up with the requirements laid upon the priests. Now, I want you to come with me to, look to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus 10 is the record concerning the laying down of the law concerning wine and strong drink for the priests. And I think we are familiar with this context. This is the first day of the operation of the law of Moses under the ministration of the Aaronic priesthood. In a moment we're going to talk about the seven days of consecration which had preceded it. But here in Leviticus 10, after fire falls from heaven in the last verse of chapter 9, and we see fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat which when all the people saw they shouted and fell on their faces. The next thing we read is that Nadab and Abihu the two oldest sons of Aaron took either of them his censer with strange fire that is fire not taken from the altar of burnt offering and they came in before Yahweh and there went out fire verse 2 from him and devoured them and they died in the presence not only of God who had destroyed them, but in the presence of all the people who gathered around, in the presence of Aaron, the high priest. And we need to try and enter into this record because it's an important element of what we're going to say about that stipulation required of the Nazarite, like that of the priest, that he should not go near a dead body. He should not attend funerals. Very important to understand what that means in relation to the Nazarite vow. So the record goes on in verse 3 of Leviticus 10. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is that that Yahweh spake, saying, and I'll give you Rotherham's translation, In them that draw near to me must I be hallowed, and before the faces of all the people must I get myself honour. In other words, the priests were representative men. They represented God to the people and the people to God. They had therefore to be sanctified and they had to sanctify Yahweh in the eyes of the people and for them to bring in strange fire was disastrous as it proved to be. They were struck down. Can you imagine what that scene was like, brethren and the sisters? Two fried bodies sizzling, smoke rising out of them, prone on the ground, their priestly garments burnt, and Aaron the high priest standing there looking at his two eldest boys, dead. Can you imagine that scene? How would you feel... If you were Aaron, would not your bowels yearn for your boys? Would you not have within the desperate feelings of a father who has lost his sons? Of course you would. Was Aaron some kind of automaton that God should now say to him through Moses, Don't you dare show any sign of remorse or sorrow. Don't you dare rend your clothes or take off your mitre. You stand there Aaron and show no emotion. That's what God requires of him. We read in verse 4 that Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary. So they came in and they picked them up. You can imagine this scene. And marched them out. And Moses said to Aaron in verse 6, And to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning. Why would God require that of Aaron and his two surviving sons? It doesn't sound reasonable, does it? It's very reasonable. When you recognise that Aaron was God's representative to the people, he had to take God's position In this matter, he had to rise above the natural feelings of his body, the yearnings for his own children. He had to stand back from that and not attend their funeral. You see where that law, that requirement that they should not go into a dead body comes from. But then we come down to verse 8, that Yahweh spake unto Aaron, saying, This is directly to him, not through Moses. Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee when ye go in to the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that ye may put difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. Now the record doesn't say specifically that the problem of Nadab and Abihu was strong drink. It doesn't say that they were drunk, but it's very difficult, isn't it? It'd be very difficult not to make that connection, that the problem with these two boys, if I can call them that, Aaron's boys, his oldest sons, was that they had been on the drink. He wants people who live by love and not by law. So the Nazarite, in a way, was superior to the priesthood of Aaron. That's not diminishing Aaron's character or in any way perhaps taking aim at his dedication. We know that he was a dedicated man, though so he made mistakes. But the Nazarite was superior because Aaron had to do what he was doing. There was no choice for him. It was a requirement that he do these things. But a man or a woman who took the Nazarite vow did so because they wanted to do it. They offered themselves willingly and freely out of love and a desire to emulate their high priest. They wanted to be like the high priest. Can You see the point of that for ourselves, brethren and sisters? There is a huge difference between living by law and living by love. And that's what this vow is about. Now the high priest was a microcosm of Israel. Let's come back to the record of Leviticus chapter 8. Here is the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And we read in the early verses of chapter 8, verse 3 for instance, Gather thou all the congregation, together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Why would that requirement be laid down on this day? Well, you see, all Israel had to be there because, brethren and sisters, what they were going to see, what they were going to see before them was typical of what God required of each of his people. The whole nation was to watch the unfolding of the consecration of Aaron and his sons over seven days. They looked at this representative man and they saw in him a representation of themselves and it impressed upon every individual Israelite the fundamental character of their duty to their God. But you see, there were some amazing things happening all at the same time. There were in fact three concurrent events. On the first day of the first month of the second year, after they came out of Egypt, Moses set up the tabernacle and sanctified it as it's recorded for us in Exodus 40 verse 1 and verse 17. They'd taken six months to prepare the materials for the tabernacle. And in one day, in the morning, it suddenly appeared before Israel. It was typical of the glorification of the saints who in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, shall be changed and will appear in glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. But on that first day of the first month of the second year, something else began. There was this first seven days in which Aaron and his sons were consecrated to the priesthood, as is recorded for us in chapter 8 of Leviticus. And this pointed forward, brethren and sisters, to the anointing of the millennial priesthood. For we shall be kings and priests and shall reign upon the earth. Something else was happening at the same time. The first 12 days of the second year, the princes of the tribes brought offerings for the tabernacle, one on each day for those first 12 days. And this was typical of the role of the saints as kings and rulers in the Kingdom Age. So there were many things happening at the same time. And the attention of Israel was drawn particularly to the consecration of Aaron and his sons, as is recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 8. Now I just want to step you very quickly down through this chapter. We don't have time to go into great details. We just want to pick up the essence of what was happening here. In verse 6 we read that Aaron and his sons were washed with water. And we know what that means. The washing of water by the word. There had to be sinlessness. A washing away, as it were, of sin. In verse 12 we read that Aaron's head and those of his sons were anointed with oil. Oil, the symbol of the spirit, on the head. Speaking of a spiritual mind, there was a need for the priesthood to have the mind of the spirit. In verses 14 to 17, the sin offering is made and it noted Israel's need for the forgiveness of sins. They were looking at Aaron and his sons who represented them and they saw the need, first and foremost, for the forgiveness of sins. Man's greatest need, apart from his need, for redemption of body. We come down to verses 18 to 21 and we see the burnt offering made. And we know that the burnt offering was made in a certain order, head first, the fat, and then the innards and the legs. The principle being that God requires our service, our dedication, which is what the burnt offering spoke of, in a certain order, mentally, morally and physically. The way we think will affect the way we feel about his principles. And the way we feel about his principles will affect what we do in our life, mentally, morally, physically. So Israel looks on and they see this. In verses 22 to 29, the peace offering is made, honouring the privilege of fellowship with God. For the peace offering spoke of that, and it was partaken of by those who offered it. And so brethren and sisters we'll come back to that in a moment, because there's a very real, very, very, very important principle in verses 23 and 24 in relation to this peace offering. But then we go down to verses 33 to 35, and we see that these rituals were to be followed throughout the seven days." Verse 33 says, "And you shall not go out of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation in seven days." Now seven, of course, seven days, is a complete cycle of time. It taught that the priestly people must ever remain spiritually in God's presence. Once in the truth, you stay in the truth. Not by law, but by love. A desire to remain in God's presence. And so for seven days, these rituals went on. And they were not to go out of the door of the tabernacle of congregation. As it says in verse 35, Therefore shall ye abide at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation day and night, seven days, and keep the charge of Yahweh that ye die not. There's an urgent emphasis upon a spiritual or moral requirement there, brethren and sisters. Once in, don't go out. And so we see how Israel looked upon Aaron and his sons being consecrated. And they saw some marvellous principles. Let's come back to verses 23 and 24. For Aaron and his sons were anointed with with blood on the right ear, thumb and great toe, as you read in verse 23. So Moses took the ram of consecration and he slew it. He took the blood of it. He put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand. And upon the great toe of his right foot, Israel's looking on. The whole nation is staring at this. What does this mean? God is teaching them. The ear, the hearing instrument, goes in to the mind. Hearing is by the word of God, says Paul. That's how you get faith. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Then we have the thumb of the hand. You can't work with the hand without the thumb. And so it speaks of works or activities. The things we do upon the great toe. You can't walk. You have no balance without a great toe. So it speaks of our walk, our way of life. So fellowship with Yahweh was dependent on the principles of sacrifice because it was blood that was placed upon ear, thumb and toe affecting every aspect of our lives. That was the lesson Israel was taught as they watched the consecration of Aaron and his sons. So then, let's just pause for a moment and summarise these things again in the words of Brother Barley. He says, With what dismay the pious Israelite would realise that try as he would to serve and please his God, there was no access to the altar possible for him. The stringency of the law admitted of no relaxation. What then had the law to say in encouragement of those who took the priestly status and privileges of the nation seriously? and wish to realise them in terms of holiness, of life? We have our answer in the Nazarite regulations. To appreciate these regulations, we need to recall certain matters affecting the Aaronic priesthood itself, or more exactly, affecting Aaron as its head and type. He was a full-time servant of his God, and as such, separate from other men, being especially holy to him. He was the embodiment of Israel's status as a kingdom of priests and as such the exemplar not only of his sons but equally of all the pious men and women in Israel. Just one more page. How then could these men and women attain to his holiness and realise the ideal of self-consecration which he in his official role typified for them seeing their lay status made any active assumption by them of priestly duties an impossibility? The law resolved their problem by arranging for the voluntary assumption by them of duties parallel with those of the high priest, duties differing from his only slightly in nature and not at all in essence. Beautiful words which summarise what we've endeavoured to establish in relation to the Nazarite vow and its connection with priesthood. That's what this vow was given for. And brethren and sisters, it has a clear relationship to ourselves, does it not? Now, there are three words in Numbers chapter 6, to which we shall now return, which are rendered as Nazarite, or separate, or consecrated, or some similar translation. Perhaps the most important of those is the word Nazar, which you can see there, 5144 four in Strong's, that's the primary root. It's the root of the word Nazir, which is rendered Nazarite uh, in Numbers chapter 6 and elsewhere. And there's another word, the word Nizar, which also has as its root Nazar. Now, each of these words, and we're not going to go into the details of that. You can do that quite simply yourselves by looking up Strong's and Quarters. The point of putting that up is we want to see the, the beauty of the divine mind in establishing what we've just been talking about, because when you look at the use of these three words in numbers chapter six, you find this fact that Nazar occurs six times rendered Nazarite. Nazar is there five times rendered separate or separative or consecrate. Nizar is there thirteen times as separation. Or consecration. Now, you've been given a sheet of paper and you actually pick those up from that sheet of paper. They're highlighted in different colours. I won't go through that now, but it's pretty obvious when you look at it, that's the purpose of highlighting. To show you where those words occur. Not always easy to tell from the English translation which word is which. But why is this important? Well, as you can see, 6, 5 and 13 add up to 24. And 24 just happens to be the scriptural number for priests. In 1 Chronicles 24 verse 4, David assembled the Levites, the priestly tribe, and he gave them certain responsibilities in the house, or at least in the tabernacle and later on in the house. In chapter 25, he assembled the singers from amongst the Levites. And you all know that there were 24 courses. That's why in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4, we read of 24 elders who surround the throne. The 24 elders represent the saints in their priestly role, while the four living creatures represent the saints in their kingly or administrative roles in the kingdom of God. And in Revelation chapter 5 verses 8 to 10 we know those well-known words that thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth. So the kings are there in the living creatures but the priests are there in the 24 elders. And that might be a small point but it demonstrates beyond dispute to my mind that Numbers chapter 6 the law of the Nazarite is about the assumption of duties parallel with those of the priests. And God has put it like that in number 6, that we might see that. So it's just a way of cementing the point that we've made. Now then, let's have a look at some of the keys to this chapter. In verse 2 of Numbers 6, we read this. God says unto Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them. He doesn't say, command the children of Israel. You have look back at chapter 5, verse 2. There we read, in relation to the law of leprosy, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper. There was no option, no choice. Put them out. Leprosy represented the outbreak of sin and rebellion. Put them out. But when you come to the law of the Nazarite, it's not command the Israelites. It is speak unto the children of Israel. In other words, make an appeal. Make an appeal for volunteers. I don't want conscripts. I want people to take this vow vow upon themselves out of a willing heart. He goes on to say in verse 2, when either man or woman shall separate themselves to, a, to vow a vow. Men and women have equal scope in relation to this vow. That's most unusual, isn't it? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 quotes the law. He quotes the law of oaths to demonstrate that women should keep silence in the ecclesia. But they should not usurp the responsibilities given to the brethren. So he uses the law to show that the woman should be subject to the man. But here, brethren and sisters, the woman has equal scope with the man. It matters not whether you're male or female. You could take a Nazarite vow. I find that very interesting indeed. It says in verse 2, when they shall separate themselves to vow a vow. Now that first occurrence of the word separate there is an entirely different word than the words nazar, nizer and so on. It is the word pala. So, we come down to this word (coughs) pala. Excuse me. (coughs) It means to separate, to distinguish or to do something extraordinary. And this taking of a vow was something extraordinary because the individual who did it, male or female, was saying, I want to be like my high priest. I want to emulate my high priest. I want to follow in his steps to be holy like him. I don't even need to spell that out, do I? I don't even need to take the next step. We can all see how that relates to ourselves. In verses 4 to 13, we read this phrase all the days. It occurs seven times in that section, verses 4 down to uh, verse 12. It occurs for an eighth time in verse 13. So what we have here, brethren and sisters, is this Phrase used seven times, full cycle, and then for an eighth time in relation to the completion of the vow. And we'll talk more about that, God willing, tomorrow. So there is faithfulness to a covenant which leads to the eighth occurrence. Eight, the number of immortality, a new beginning. And we're going to see that the completion of the vow spoke in type of the assumption of immortality. That was the end to which this vow would lead and in the higher plane, the spiritual level. We also find, and you can see this from your sheet, I think it's in red, that the term head occurs eight times in the chapter. As we've said, eight is the number of a new beginning, an immortality. So the key to immortality is the separation of the mind. And so we come, brethren and sisters, in the last ten minutes of this study this morning to look at what I think, is the key issue of Numbers chapter 6. We want to see that there is a common denominator between these three stipulations that are spelled out for us in verses 3 to 8 of Numbers 6. Let's have a look at them. There's the strong drink, which we read of in verses 3 and 4. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and from any product of the vine, verse 4, all the days of the vow of his separation, whether it's for a week or a month or a year or years, whatever the period of the, of the vow was, he was to separate himself or herself from wine and strong drink. Why would that be the case? Well, you see, brethren and sisters, wine affects the brain. But it doesn't affect the brain Immediately you drink it. It takes a while, a while, for the wine to go down into the, through the gullet, into the stomach, and for the stomach to do its job of taking the alcohol into the bloodstream, and the blood is pumped into the brain, and you got it. Start to get all bleary and wobbly, and what is happening is that the body is impacting the mind. The body is feeding up the intoxicating influence which befuddles and clouds the mind. You see, the body is affecting the head. What I want you to see now is that these three stipulations in number six all have a common denominator. And the common denominator is the head. The second one, pretty obvious, isn't it? The undressed hair. It mimicked the high priest's turban. It may be that the Nazarite, who grew his or her hair long, would not leave it sort of hanging down shaggily. It's quite possible that the Nazarite who understood why the hair was kept uncut would follow the example of the priest. The priest had on his head a turban. So perhaps the hair was taken and put into a bun, like a turban shape. We don't know. We're not told that. But the perceptive Nazarite would have seen that what he or she was doing was emulating the high priest. So their head stood out, just like his head stood out, with that plate, that golden plate, with the words, Holiness to Yahweh inscribed upon it. So the head is obviously prominent in that matter of the undressed hair. What about the next one? Avoid death. Well, we talked about this in Leviticus 10, didn't we? How would you do that, brethren and sisters? How would you, like Aaron had to, stand there looking at your two oldest boys frizzled by fire? Smoke coming out of their bodies and clothing. And stand there and look upon it as God looked upon it. How would you do that? You would have to separate your mind from the natural feelings of your body. Your bowels would yearn. These boys came out of your bowels. He couldn't help but feel strong feelings and passions. But God was saying, Aaron, lift your head above the natural feelings of your body. And here we have the essence of the Nazarite vow. It's the principle that we've spoken of in Colossians 3 a couple of times already this week, where Paul says that if ye be risen with Christ, Seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above. Now that word affection that he uses in Colossians 3, and I'd take you there if I had time, is a word, phronio, that means the operation of the mind. It's talking about thinking. Not so much affection, but the operation of the mind. It leads to affection. Set the operation of your mind upon things above and not upon the things on the earth and mortify, deaden the deeds of the body. So Paul is talking about raising our head above our bodies. Uh, I'm accused of uh, leaving behind some graphic imagery. There are some who will recall the open hand from 13 years ago. Well, there's going to be more graphic imagery, but it's a bit more gruesome. We're going to be talking about heads being separated from bodies. The French are good at this, aren't they? They use a guillotine. But I don't need to tell you that there was a man, a great man, who had his head separated from his body. He'll come before our notice in our studies this week. And that's the principle we want to get home here, brethren and sisters. It's about separating the head. Wine is intoxicating. It dulls the mind and confuses the senses. This term head occurs eight times in the chapter. Hair, you'd think the emphasis would go on hair, wouldn't you? Long hair? No. You only find the word hair twice in number six. It's the head that's being emphasised. And we've seen that death, requires the rising above our natural feelings so the common denominator for the nazarite vow in these three seemingly unrelated stipulations is the head and that's where our focus will be for the rest of our studies during this week god willing